This podcast is part of the Democracy Group. Welcome, welcome, welcome. We are talking politics and religion without killing each other. I am your host, Corey Nathan, and it is so cool to be able to talk about politics and religion and the stuff that you're not supposed to talk about with some of my favorite writers, thinkers, and leaders, and regular folks like me. All kinds of people of and good faith, and it is an honor to be able to share that this program is a part of Ocracy Group, a network of podcasts that examines what's working in our democracy and how we can work together to fix it. If you're listening to this program for the first time, I really appreciate it. We have added a whole bunch of new listeners. It is so encouraging. And, you know, I, I welcome all kinds of folks into this conversation that we've been trying to have. You know, the tough talking about the tough issues, but in a different way, speaking in a more healthy way across our differences. So if you dig what you hear, I would ask you a few things. One, make sure you're subscribed to Talk of Politics and Religion Without Killing Each Other. Hit the subscribe button or the follow button, depending on what app you're on. And, um, you know, we're pretty easy to find. You just look for T-A-L-K-I-N apostrophe, talking with an apostrophe instead of a G, T-A-L-K-I-N apostrophe politics on most apps and talk of politics and religion without killing each other will come up. And then, you know, another thing you could do is tell a friend, bring a friend who maybe you disagree with a little bit of the time into this conversation. Say, hey, listen to that uh, episode with... Uh, Jen Rubin or the episode with Denver Riggleman or Steve. We've had a lot of good ones. Lisa Sharon Harper, some really good ones here recently and some great ones coming up, including the one today. You know, tell them to listen. Uh, super easy to find, whether it's on the app or on our website, politicsandreligion.us. That's www.politicsandreligion.us. And all of that just helps get the word out so more people can participate in this conversation like the one we're having today with Al Cardenas. Al Cardenas, uh, you might re recognize from his frequent appearances as a contributor on NBC, CNN, Fox, MSNBC, and Telemundo. And he's uh, about every six weeks, he's on Meet the Press. We were just talking about that before we hit record. And uh, he's on CNN in, in uh, the Spanish language, CNN, as, a, as an analyst. Al has served as an advisor to U.S. presidents has been named one of Washington, D.C.'s top lobbyists by The Hill. You might remember Bob Cusack, editor-in-chief, who we just had on the show a couple of weeks ago. Al was named one of the most influential leaders in the Latino community today by a number of leading national publications. He is the vice chairman of No Labels and formerly was chairman of the American Conservative Union and served two terms as chairman of the Republican Party of Florida. And Governor Jeb Bush appointed Al as a member of the Board of Trustees of Florida A&M University. He is a former trustee of Miami-Dade College and was named to its Hall of Fame. But we might have to create a Hall of Fame just for talk of politics and religion without killing each other, just so we can put Al right in it. You, you'd be in the uh, inaugural class. Al, thanks so much for joining us today. How you doing? I'm doing great. Uh, delighted to be with you. Absolutely. You know, in, in reading about your and, and doing some research on your background, I was curious if you could share with our listeners what it was like, you know, you spent the first part of your life in, in Cuba uh, some, from 48 to, I think, 1960. Could you describe the Cuba of your, your youth? Sure. Well, it was a fairly privileged, uh, you know, youth. My, my dad wasn't a 
zillionaire, but he was chairman of one of the most prosperous banks in Cuba. We lived a good life. Uh, we had housekeepers. My, my mom was a housewife. Uh, you know, we were part of anything we want to be a part of in terms of, uh, you know, the lifestyle that we had. And and for a 12-year-old going to private schools and all of that, that was very, very comfortable. Uh, all of a sudden, that life changed uh, significantly. Uh, we fled the island in 1960. And when I say fled, uh, I meant it. Uh, my dad had to come later. Uh, you know, the Cuba was nationalizing uh, everything. The banks, you know, every financial institution was getting nationalized. And the Castro regime had very little of any uh, uh, talent to be able to accomplish that. And so people like my dad uh, were not allowed to leave and were forced to be part of the this transition. And so, uh, you know, we left in a hurry. Uh, others had a more leisurely way to plan their exit. We did not. Uh, my dad joined us later, but, you know, being here, uh, being welcomed by Catholic charities and being given an opportunity to literally exist after a fairly comfortable life, my first 12 years, took some adjusting. Uh, but, you know, in the United States, adjusting is not a bad thing. Uh, as compared to other places, Catholic charities allowed me to go to uh, private Catholic schools. I was fortunate there to, you know, do well in sports. So I was able to mingle socially well. Uh, all of this took place in Fort Lauderdale. And uh, and so my dad came and uh, contrary to uh, his career path in Cuba, he was literally doing uh, you know, being a bookkeeper for a trucking, small trucking company and odd jobs like that. And and uh, eventually he died of a heart attack when I was in college. And so we uh, took, you know, our, our family went through a bit of turmoil and it made me grow up in a hurry. And uh, it made us, uh, my mother, my younger sister and I, uh, we uh, we were very close as a result of all you know that I was curious about that period of your life because I, I noticed that your family arrived here in 1960, but then by 1978 you ran for Congress. That's a relatively short time to go from just arriving on the shores of the U.S. But I, I the way the way that I could track it and, and correct me if I'm wrong, it seems that you were able to uh, take the next rung and pull yourself up, and the next rung from junior college to a four-year degree to Seton Hall Law. Uh, but but it sounds like your family went through some other turmoil with your father passing away. Uh, could you describe that period of your life and how you ended up running for Congress from uh, humble uh, from humble beginnings? Well, from the days I got to the U.S., we had to make do. So, you know, started mowing lawns and selling donuts uh, door to door when I was 12. And then when I was 15, took on other assignments, worked at uh, you know, grocery stores and park cars on weekends and uh, played sports, all of this in high school. So I was used to being pretty busy early on. Uh, my family having gone through what it did, I was interested more so than just about most high school students in politics and world affairs. And, uh, you know, and that, uh, you know, helped me to, to be more, more active in this process. Uh, you know, I went to community college because we couldn't afford anything else. I worked while I was at community college. I then went to uh, university, uh, 
was a lifeguard there. That's not a bad job. And uh, did other <laughs> odds and end jobs and, uh, and graduated. And uh, thanks to uh, uh, thanks to the Catholic Church, you know, I was able to get uh, a you know, relationship with Seton Hall of Catholic University. And they gave me a break on tuition. And I went up there to New Jersey and uh, went to law school there. And I still had to have two jobs. Uh, in addition to tuition help, I was able to work in a law firm. Uh, and uh, and then on weekends, I worked in a package store bar. And that helped me uh, finance my way through law school. But by the time I got through law school, I was ready to jump in on the political process. And so I, I ran for... Uh, for chair of the county, Ocean County, I lived in. And lo and behold, I won by one vote over a freeholder, which is the equivalent to a county commissioner in Florida. And that got a lot of people's attention. How in the world did this happen? And uh, and then I became chairman of a young Republicans in New Jersey. And that got the attention of some folks who, uh, who were involved in the Reagan campaign or putting it together. And uh, when I graduated, uh, I came back to Miami because I, you know, didn't want to leave my mother and sister alone. And uh, my mother didn't speak English that much. And my sister was in college. And so I, I wanted to join them and help. And when I got uh, down to Miami, uh, some of the Reagan folks who had met me in the young Republican circles asked me if I would, uh, you know, if I would help direct the campaign in Florida. And I said, look, I don't really know the players in Florida, you're probably better off with someone else. Remember, this was a primary with uh, with Gerald Ford. Uh, but I did it anyway and uh, got to meet a lot of people I otherwise would not have met. And uh, in the process, it's fair to say that Reagan lost the primary to Ford, but the Reagan people kind of uh, became the majority of the RNC. And uh, Bill Brock became its chairman and uh, other folks got involved. and. And one story uh, led to another, and they convinced me to run for Congress against, frankly, an icon, uh, uh, Claude Pepper, who uh, who had run for the U.S. Senate before, was a member of Congress, was 78 years old, and a real institution. And I was maybe 28 when I ran, uh, but we did really well. The RNC supported me. Uh, I got to meet uh, a former president, George W. Bush, like me, he ran. Like me, we were both single. Like me, we had never run for public office before, and like me, we both lost. <laughs> but that was that was you know that was my introduction to George W. Bush and the Bush family, which uh, you know became a significant factor in the future. Yeah. So a, a lot of questions that that you just uh, raised. One just for fun, and then we'll get to a, a more serious one. So I'm placing you in New Jersey right about the time that a very young Bruce Springsteen was still playing Freehold and Asbury Park and Point Pleasant. With all the, the two jobs and law school, did you ever get to break away, go down the shore and see Bruce Springsteen and some of those other early uh, bands, Southside Johnny and the Jukes, any of, any of that stuff? Or <laughs> were you too busy working and studying? Yeah, I was too busy, but I, I caught on to a couple of uh, of these things. I, I lived near the shore in Pumps River and and, uh, and Bayhead. And uh, and so I was fortunate enough to go to a couple of concerts on, on in the shore and, uh, and enjoy that. But frankly, between you and I, it was just hard. I was just lucky to get a little sleep now and then. But I, I was sure aware of it. I was sure of, aware of their music. 
my uh, my best friend in law school actually was uh, was my best man when Anna and I married, and so we've re- we've retained a I've retained a long relationship with some of my friends in New Jersey. Oh man, there's something to be said about lifelong friends. Uh, shout out to my my best friends that I grew up with. Two towns to the north of Tom's River, by the way. Uh, my friends Mark, Steve, and Ira. To, to this, we went to high school together. Uh, Mark and Steve uh, went to law school. One went to Miami uh, Law. Steve went to Miami yeah. Law. Uh, Mark is still down in New Orleans. He went to Tulane. Um, so there's something to be said about lifelong friends. Uh, you know, from your youth. Well, the fellow I'm the fellow I'm referring to, uh, Marty Raskin. He uh, he was lured by me at the time. I was pretty active by then uh, to come to a U.S. attorney's office in South Florida and became the head of the criminal division at a time in the early 80s when the narco trafficking was going on. People were getting killed in a lot of different places. Marty had his hands full and uh, and he, uh, you know, stayed a criminal lawyer uh, for the rest of his career, uh, jumped to the private side, Mary Jane, who was brilliant, uh, who was at the Department of Justice, uh, who uh, who worked with Governor Welch at the time. And so, you know, lucky for me, I've been able to retain a lot of my uh, a lot of my friends from early on from college. I have a, a friend that's still very close, Rick Nesbitt, who did really well at financial services and banking. And so I can come up with a list of I would say of my 10 closest friends, seven or eight came from the time I was in my 20s. And and so that's rewarding. That's great. It makes life more richer and richer experiences and sweeter uh, a lot of times. And, you know, you're there for each other during hard times and to celebrate the good times and go through it all together. Uh, You know, I was curious, though, about some of those formative years in your young adulthood, law school and and shortly thereafter. How did you arrive at your political disposition? And in particular, you mentioned that you were on the Reagan campaign, the 76 uh, primary campaign. Why? uh, How did you how did you decide on Ronald Reagan at that time as opposed to supporting the uh, the President Ford? Well, I had been reading a lot of uh, books, primarily conservative books. Uh, one of the fellow, one of the people that I, I really read quite a bit, uh, you know, led me to be eventually uh, chairman of ACU, and that's William Buckley. And mm. so I read everything Buckley would put out. I watched him on TV. Uh, you know, I read, I would say, 15, 20 books about what being a conservative was all about. Quite different than what people call themselves conservatives nowadays. And, and uh, we didn't have any culture wars in those days. We we're just talking about the right public policy and what we ought to do. And, and uh, so by the time I left uh, law school, or while I was in law school, I was pretty sure that I was a, a Reagan supporter. And so when the opportunity came about uh, and I was asked, I, I jumped, I jumped uh, at it and, and did it. And uh, frankly, you know, it, it was a personal financial sacrifice. And we didn't have much, but I was that much into public service and helping out and fascinated by how I could be a part of, you know, the uh, the American dream in the public service side. Finally, you know, frankly, after I didn't win that rate, I won my primary handily. I got 85 percent of voting primary, but lost to Claude Pepper again. You know, he was such a legend that that was expected. Uh, I. Uh, 
But then I was asked to be part of supporting Reagan again. And, uh, and I did. Uh, and uh, I went and headed the, he won in 1980. And uh, I went and headed the Department of Commerce in the transition. And I was ready to go back home and, and uh, start a life as a lawyer. And, uh, and then Richard Allen, who was head of his uh, national security uh, effort and uh, both in the uh, in the transition and later on at the early days of the White House said, hey, you can't go home empty handed. And so they made me through the help of Jim Baker, a special ambassador to the Caribbean. And so I did that. And so I could call myself an ambassador, which incidentally I never have. I, I figured uh, a lot, most other people do, but I, I, I moved on and finally uh, came back to Miami to start practicing law and be with my family. And, uh, and so that, you know, I enjoyed a lot. I, I love practicing law. I love the challenges it presented. Uh, but I, I still, you know, helped the Reagan administration quite a bit. I was chairman of the Small and Minority Business uh, Commission. I, uh, I then became a director of Fannie Mae, and that was quite an instruction, frankly. And, uh, and uh, all this time I was practicing law and helping out politically build the Republican Party in my state because it was all Democrat at the time. Strong Democrat legislature, not a single Republican elected statewide. So we try to build that. I have become close friends with Jeb Bush, who, you know, is part of the Bush family. I was introduced by his brother. Jeff settled in Miami as well. And so we collectively try to do that. And uh, eventually I ran for party vice chairman and I won that three times and uh, helped Jeff. He didn't win his the governorship in 94, but he won it in 98. And I was chairman of his campaign. And by 98, I was chairman of the state party. And by that time, we were able to, ever since Reconstruction, become a majority in the state legislature, both in the House and Senate, and uh, got a lot of good folks elected. And, and so it was part of the dream to be a chairman of a party at a time when it transitions to a majority party after a hundred and some years being in the minority it was pretty cool and, uh, and enjoyed that part of it. So, you know, a lot of, uh, a lot of things happened in my life. We got to talk to Rick Wilson about Florida politics, so I definitely want to ask you a little bit about that. But I have a, I have a tough question for you. You mentioned William F. Buckley, who's a, his his thinking and his writing is a strong influence on a lot of great thinkers. Uh, you know, folks who've arrived at their own conservative conclusions and 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 their own conservative positions. Uh, some of uh, Buckley's earlier work, in particular, wasn't uh, favorable to minorities. Uh, you could see some of the strains of that. Uh, even in um, Reagan's rhetoric, uh, some of his speeches, for example, at the Republican National Conventions uh, through the 70s. Did any, did you see any of that? And did any of that concern you? Well, it was a mixed uh, review for me. For example, Reagan was the last president to pass immigration reform. And he made over 2 million undocumented Hispanics citizens of the United States. That was, that was important. And, uh, you know, he was big into getting people to speak English. Uh, he was big into this, not English only, but English. And so he, uh, he didn't like the idea of, you know, having ballots in Spanish, things like that, because he figured, hey, if you're going to vote, you ought to know the language. And so, yeah, that's something I disagree with him on. But frankly, 
if you compare Reagan's immigration policies to today's Republican Party, it was night and day. He was very inclusive, very understanding, very sympathetic to what becoming a citizen meant and opened doors to those who wanted to become Americans. And so I really never had a problem with him about that. Uh, Buckley lived in a different era. You know, he uh, he lived in an era where you could actually go through the hoops and become a resident or a citizen, things which didn't exist afterwards. So, you know, he, he lived at a time when you could follow the law and still come to America. Uh, things changed quite a bit after that. Yeah. Yeah. And it's fair to say that if you look at uh, Buckley's earlier uh, works, uh, he, you, you can see the evolution in his thinking. And I think a lot of that is due to the robust debate within the conservative movement. Uh, so I, I don't I don't want to I don't want that last question to sound like, oh, they're, you know, uh, anti immigrant or, you know, I, I think in both cases, you could see the evolution in their thinking and the evolution in the policies that they ultimately supported over the course of their uh, careers and their lives. So, um, no, I, I appreciate that. And, you know, it's you took a, a unique position. Buckley was a very staunch conservative, but a very practical man when it came to politics. You could read the things he would say time and time again. He said, look, fight for your fight for your principles but they're good hard but you know if the best proposal on the table improves what's on what's you know what's in the statute or what's the law at the time go for it i mean we we don't want to be uh, we don't want to stymie progress from a conservative standpoint by sticking to positions that won't allow the nation to move forward and so to me that was one of the greatest uh, principles that uh, that stuck with me during all of my during all of my years in, in politics so as i mentioned before i i um Let i did want to ask this you about way. i don't think i don't think william buckley uh, would be very popular today with that freedom caucus i'll say that yeah there's a lot of folks who are true conservatives i i don't think uh, burke uh, Edmund Burke would be particularly popular in today's Freedom Caucus, or or right. Thomas Sowell, yeah. for that matter. I mean, there are some great thinkers yeah. uh, that influenced uh, conservative thinking uh, that that would not be welcomed in today's Freedom Caucus or the MAGA Republicans. So you, you and I are pr probably on the same page in that regard. I did want to ask you about uh, Florida politics. Uh, you not only served as chairman of the Republican Florida, uh, Florida Republican Party, you served as vice chairman, I think, for three terms prior to being chairman. And you right. served in particular during a time when the party really started running circles around the Democratic Party. What were some of the tactics that you deployed in order to see so much success uh, and turn the party's favors around over that time? Well, there are a few things, right? I, I noticed early on in the early 90s that North Florida was all Democrat. And frankly, if you looked at the voting blocks there and if you talk to elected officials there, they're really Republicans, but they, they stayed as Democrats because their daddies and granddaddies and great grandparents were all Democrats. And so turning that around was our was a big goal and we succeeded at that and changed numbers dramatically. Uh, the, the second thing we did was work hard on reapportionment. I, you know, I remember in, uh, in 1980, the state had uh, created this multi-member legislative district 
to frankly dilute minority votes and concentrate heavy blocks of of, uh, of voters who be sympathetic to them, uh, and uh, and that that became a problem. So I, I went to the Supreme Court, and believe it or not, with NAACP as a colleague, and we filed these briefings. Uh, you know, I filed uh, these briefings where we went directly to the Supreme Court on what's known as a petition for certiorari, went and prevailed. And so the Supreme Court mandated uh, the circuit court uh, take testimony on other redo the the uh, districts, and of course the legislature didn't want to let that happen, and they they then created a or they then called a special session and redid it, created single member districts, and that was another huge win for us where we won probably twenty some seats as a result of that reapportionment that we didn't have before, and so. Uh, reapportionment helped the, the uh, voting uh, re uh, uh, that the, the effort to change voters registration helped and then the third one was recruiting hard good candidates who could appeal to the various areas of geographic areas of Florida and so those three things I think were the main reason we did it but it was well thought out well funded we got a lot of believers to put uh, millions of dollars into the party, which had never happened before. And uh, and our dreams became reality. That was a long effort during a whole decade for that to happen. And we've never looked back. Uh, legislatures wow. remained Republican ever since. Uh, it's now been 20 some years. Uh, every statewide elected official is now a Republican. The majority of members of Congress are Republican. And, uh, and now they're probably 150,000 more Republicans registered in Florida than Democrats. And so, you know, haven't taken the foot off the pedal uh, in spite of the fact that I think we've given openings to Democrats, but they haven't been able to seize the moment. Yeah. So a as an attorney, I'm, I'm curious uh, your thoughts, if, if you've been following some uh, redistricting cases that have gone to the Supreme Court. Uh, there was one last year uh, re regarding North Carolina's districts, how are, they were redistricted. Um, and then it's ultimately back at the North Carolina Supreme Court. There was one that was um, the, the decision was released just la last week with regard to Alabama. I'm wondering if you've been following those cases. Yeah, that Alabama decision I read. Uh, there's a district in Florida that falls right in line with the Alabama decision, which incidentally, uh, uh, it was very interesting because you had two Republicans that uh, voted for that. And it was a five to four decision in the United States Supreme Court that uh, took a lot of people by surprise. I, I wasn't surprised with Justice Roberts, but I was you know, pleasantly surprised uh, that there was a second Republican uh, Supreme Court vote there. And so now we're going to Florida. Probably there'll be a lawsuit uh, that will win and prevail, and Florida will be redistricted. My sense is Democrats will gain a seat there. And so the Republicans, with only a four-seat advantage, uh, one of them will probably not last long because I think George Santos is going to be thrown out of the House. And then you've got these other seats you know, come, come 2024, it's going to be another very close decision as to which party's in the majority. 
Yeah. You know, I'm fascinated by uh, the conservative legal movement because a lot of folks just assume uh, or without really taking a look at the decisions uh, and the the tradition, the 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 legal tradition that some uh, the Trump appointed judges came from, they just assume they're like uh, other politicians, they're Freedom Caucus politicians. You know, it seems to me in learning about it from uh, others from the conservative legal movement, I'm a big fan of advisory opinions with Sarah Isger and David French, that uh, the conservative legal movement is very different than the Freedom Caucus politicians. For do you are do you follow that? Uh, do you come from the conservative legal movement, or do you follow that at all? Yeah, no, I, I'm pretty familiar with the Federalist Society. I was for many years when, when Connie Mack was the senator in Florida. Uh, for many years, I was part of what uh, we knew as a, a federal, uh, you know, court advisory or judiciary advisory group. And interestingly enough, it had as many. We were like 20, some of us, as many Democrats as Republicans, uh, because in those days, Bill Nelson and and, uh, and Connie Mack got along pretty well. They both agreed that selecting judges should be a, a process vetted by both parties. And so rather than fight each other, they agreed to have this group. And we always agreed on, on, on some choices. And to me, that was the golden years of selecting uh, federal judges in Florida, because it, it got everybody's attention. Uh, it's a little different now. There's no such thing as an advisory group, uh, you know, Republican Party or the Democrat Party, depending on who's in the White House, controls that process. Uh, but still, you know, there's I think that the Federalist Society, in spite of the, you know, over the last few years, it's been driven primarily by the abortion issue. But by and by and large, they've always selected people or recommended people who are qualified. Uh, I would say that both Democrats and Republicans have done a decent job of getting uh, of getting good good lawyers in front of the Senate for confirmation. It's interesting. I, I I'm reading Will Salatan's. Uh, short, it's a treatise, basically, it's a long treatise. And it's on the evolution of Lindsey Graham, as a way of tracking with the evolution of the Republican Party in recent history. And as recently as the Obama administration and the two Supreme Court justices that Obama nominated, if you if you if you look at Lindsey Graham's, uh, the, the way his he interacted with those nominees, uh, during Obama's administration on the Judiciary Committee, it's a very different Lindsey Graham than, for example, we saw we, we've seen in recent interviews since the um, the uh, the indictment came out, the special counsel's indictment came out uh, on Trump. Been a, you know, it's been sad for me because I've known him pretty well. Uh, if you'll remember, Lindsey Graham was one of the eight senators who promoted immigration reform. Yeah. And uh, it would have passed the Senate, except or excuse me, it passed the Senate but didn't pass the House, uh, almost passed the House, but it didn't. And, and uh, the Lindsey Graham, who advocated for immigration reform and, uh, and was a fairly moderate uh, senator, is not the same Lindsey Graham. And frankly, you know, I can live with someone uh, having an evolution in political thought, but embracing, you know, embracing the, the, the Donald Trump's vision of being having an, a stolen election, embracing some of the things I'm seeing today, it's not, that's not evolutionary. That's, uh, you know, that's just a change in your, 
in your basic values and principles. Yeah. And so I'm, I'm a bit disappointed in Lindsey Graham because he, he was always somebody next to John McCain who, who would be a conscious of the Senate. And if you ask me what happened here, I said, well, you know, he was always uh, a mentee of, of John McCain and always stuck by John McCain's principal points of view. And when John McCain unfortunately passed on, he became a different Lindsey Graham. And uh, that's the best explanation I have personally. You know, you bring up an interesting point. I, I did want to ask you a little bit about this. I noticed that I saw a, um, a video of you introducing, of all people, Bernie Sanders at a No Labels conference uh-huh. back in 2015. <laughs> yeah. So right. I was curious about that. I mean, 2015, that's before, it might have been after Trump. I don't know what month it was. So it might have been after Trump already announced his candidacy. But did you did you sense that early that there were, there were some divisions being created in the Republican Party and you wanted to be, um, you, you were beginning to choose a lane? Uh, I, I was curious, you know, how early on you got involved in no labels and, and what yeah. you were seeing that you were responding to there. Well, you know, between you and I, I never uh, thought of Bernie Sanders as somebody that no labels would embrace. I mean, it's uh, I joined it, uh, and I'll give you this reason. I, I joined it because I always uh, followed politics. When I started, uh, in, in the larger sense, when I started in the Republican Party, you had Nelson Rockefeller Republicans in Northeast. You had Bob Dole, Jerry Ford Republicans in the Midwest. And then you had conservatives from California all the way south, the coast and the south. And uh, and so we had three branches of public policy, in the Republican Party. The Democrats had primarily two, right? The Blue Dog Democrats and then everybody else. But at least they had two significant branches. And so when you looked at the makeup of a Congress, about half of the Congress was center left or center right. And so Ronald Reagan could get together with Tip O'Neill and have a drink and get things done because there was enough of a center to create, uh, eventually create a consensus. That center, which is about 50% of Congress has been shrinking and shrinking where it's about 10%. And so we've entered the age of gridlock and uh, nothing can get done of any significance. And I'm very concerned about it. Uh, You know, the White House, whether Democrat or Republican has enormous power. The legislature has given up a lot of powers to the executive branches because I couldn't get things done. And so we don't have a true balance of power in the, leg- in, in the Constitution as a result of all of that. But sadder still, we only have about 10% in the middle and therefore gridlock. And so I joined No Labels because I understood that uh, I'm a conservative and others feel maybe the same or differently. But uh, just about everybody, no labels is center left or center right. That doesn't include Bernie. So I'll get to that in a second, but uh, that's the reason I joined. And so the, uh, the long and short of it is that no labels primary purpose was to create a middle where you could get things done. And, uh, we, we in essence started in the, I don't know, 2010, 2012, I joined it in 2015, but, the, uh, the goal was that, and slowly but surely, you now have a, uh, a caucus of 40-some members of the House that are about half Republicans, half Democrats, all center-left or center-right. You've got about 
12 members in the U.S. Senate, uh, you know, people like Joe Manchin, Susan Collins, folks like that. And so those groups actually were responsible for the passage of some significant legislation. I don't think he could have had the, uh, the, the debt ceiling bill passed without them. I don't think he would have had the infrastructure bill passed without them. And so I think we've made a great contribution with regards to that. The uh, introducing uh, Senator Sanders was a kick for me because everybody that knew me knew that I wasn't like a Bernie Sanders guy. And I enjoyed the presentation because I said, you know, everybody thinks of Bernie Sanders as his old guy. He's actually the same age as Mick Jagger. And so everybody <laughs> had a good time with that. And, and, uh, and so I had a good time introducing Bernie Sanders. It wasn't like I endorsed him or what he did. It was just, you know, they were at a public forum where there are Democrats and Republicans there. And everybody at No Labels had her introduce somebody. Uh, there were like six people being introduced. And they asked me if I were to do Bernie Sanders. And I laughed and I laughed and I said, sure. I was respectful, you know, respectful of the fact that, you know, he's, uh, he's very opinionated, but true to, true to his beliefs. And, uh, and so I, I introduced him. I love that. I love it. Anytime I get to see someone uh, treat, being treated with respect, uh, someone that they disagree with on a lot of issues, but treating them as the loyal opposition, that's a refreshing uh, stance to take. And uh, we could use a lot more of it. So, uh, you know, speaking of no labels, uh, I, I am in, I'm, I'm encouraged. I, I just went to a um, early candidate uh, for our state Senate. I'm in a district north of Los Angeles in California, uh, and there's a state Senate candidate. When she was in the assembly, she was one of the founders of the Problem Solvers Caucus in the state legislature. So that's an encouraging sign to see. Yeah. You know, but there are some that are, we see a lot of hand wringing when it comes to no labels, uh, you know, that they're going to be a spoiler in the next election. Um, so for those who are concerned about what no labels might or might not do, and for those who simply don't know what no labels is, can you fill us in a little bit about what the organization is all about and what its near-term plans are? Well, you know, uh, everybody in the organization is for the goal of expanding the center, right? Center left, center right. That's kind of our unifying theme. Uh, the, uh, you know, the effort to get on the ballots uh, 2024, which uh, which will happen, whether we participate in a presidential election or not, you know, we're holding back, seeing who the parties uh, select. But I will tell you why I'm all for registering every state. Uh, you know, in our country, is uh, we've had this whole evolution, right? When our country got started with 13 states, only men, white men who own property could vote, right? And, uh, and then it became where women could vote. And then blacks really could vote in many parts of the country. And then that's where we had the voting rights act. And so, and we have had all these constitutional conventions to have amendments to the constitution or get things right. It's an imperfect, as we say, we want to make it a more perfect union. It hasn't been a more perfect union, but it's gotten better. The problem is that it's been decades now that we have 50 states, since we've been able to get enough states to want to have a constitutional convention. One of the concerns I have is how many Americans now are marginalized for voting. Uh, all the polls that we've taken recently show that 50% of Americans now consider themselves independent. 
and some of them are even registering one party or the other. But the truth of the matter is that many Americans, and in some states, most Americans, can't vote in a primary. So you're, yeah. you're left with a binary choice, not of your own choosing. And so all of this has gone on in the last decade, decade and a half. When I was party chairman, we had 8% of independents in Florida. And as a chairman, I said, no way am I going to be in favor of everybody voting a primary. You vote as a Republican or a Democrat. But that has all changed. It's all changed by the party's own faults. And the party's taken every action possible to reduce the number of people who want to vote in a primary. And so and that's decided state by state. But now we have 50% of Americans who, who feel a certain way but can't vote in a primary. They're stuck with binary choices, not of their own. And I think, you know, what we're doing at, uh, at what we're doing at No Labels is something that provides a venue for people who can't vote in a primary to express a point of view. Uh, obviously, all the attention is being got by the presidential election in 24. But my vision is much broader than that. I just don't accept the fact that political parties can move in a direction where 50 percent of Americans don't have a right to vote. And so uh, that's my primary goal of getting on the ballot in every state. My secondary goal is if the choices that the parties make are not acceptable to the majority of Americans, that we give them an opportunity uh, to vote for a third option. So that's where I am on that whole thing. Yeah, that makes sense. You know, and to your point, you cited some of the uh, progress that the uh, this administration, the Biden administration has made. Not so coincidentally, it's largely, if not solely, bipartisan legislation, uh, the bipartisan infrastructure bill, CHIPS, the chips uh, right. or semiconductors, um, right. the, the recent uh, debt ceiling, it's all been or, you know, Joe Manchin, um, uh, the most centrist or if not right of center Democrat leading uh, a major piece of legislation or gun, the first piece of gun legislation that um, uh, John Cornyn uh, led the negotiations, a Republican senator led right. the negotiations. Right. So it's been um, most pieces of legislation that have gone through significant pieces of legislation have been bipartisan. So I definitely uh, embrace that. I can sum up my involvement and no labels with one ending the gridlock so we can have some meaningful legislation passed. And two, you know, if we need to create a new set of rules where, or new set of opportunities where most Americans can vote in a primary, not just 50%. So, uh, you know, now most everybody, though, is concentrating on Donald Trump 2024. Will it hurt Biden? This and that. Well, you know, I, I don't know how to opine on that because you cast odds in a horse race, but we don't have a horse yet. So right, right. My, my answer to people is, all right, well, we don't even have a horse yet. So how do you, you know, how do you argue what no labels will do, who it would help or won't help? Uh, number one, the parties haven't decided on candidates. You can speculate. But that hasn't happened. And number two, no labels hasn't decided to field a candidate. And so, if it if it does, uh, how you know you can then judge it. But but you can't judge a horse race without a horse in the race. And that's what I tell everybody. So speaking of horse race, uh, I feel like we're turning the last furlough and coming down the. Uh, I want to I want to respect your time. And we've gone this whole race uh, and, and haven't talked too much about Donald Trump. So I do have a couple questions about that. Uh, one is okay. 
you said that you voted for Donald Trump in 2016, albeit with reservations, partly out of party loyalty, partly because you believed Hillary Clinton would win. Uh, then you said you were encouraged as the first cabinet appointments were being announced. Uh, but at what point right. did you start to really question whether you could continue to support Donald Trump as president? Well, it started with uh, his speech uh, on January 20th. I just thought it was such an awful speech. Uh, I had hoped that he would have grown once he got elected to understand the magnitude of the, the responsibility of being president. And then when I saw his speech, I said, oh, my gosh, I don't think he's learned much. And it just got worse from there. And uh, and then it was just a matter of not just the party politics as a matter of, you know, the moral compass of America being changed as a result of his leadership. And uh, people don't quite get how significant the president is in guiding the nation's moral compass and having the world figure out who we are as a nation. And uh, and he showed for all of the worst reasons how impactful a president can be. Yeah, yeah. You know, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask about, you know, as with your background as an attorney, your, your views on the numerous cases uh, against Trump, one like, you know, the, the most significant, arguably, is the indictments from the special counsel's team that were just announced. But, you know, one that's not being discussed much is the New York State set of uh, uh, charges uh, that uh, against Trump's businesses. I was curious if that's one that you were particularly watching with interest uh, with your background, especially in real estate law. Is that one that you're looking at or is it just too much to even <laughs> to even no, focus I, on hey, one? Listen, I, I, I looked at everything. I started, in, you know, I, I remember my political presidential history when John Kennedy, who's one of the most charismatic candidates we've ever had, was in fear of losing the election. And if it wasn't for the fact that his brother Bobby talked Lyndon Johnson into being his running mate, they would have lost. And you know why? Because the man was a Catholic and America had never elected a Catholic before. I mean, that's how incredible that was. And then Ronald Reagan came, who was my great mentor. And people were afraid about Ronald Reagan getting elected because he was divorced. Imagine those being America's moral compass decisions and look at it now with Ronald, with, with Donald Trump. It's all, up, I mean, it's in three categories, right? It's in the uh, paying off a prostitute. Uh, so it's part of his moral core, who he was with at a time his wife was pregnant. Uh, number two, cheating in his businesses, as that other uh, indictment was about. And then number three, who knows? Some people are even saying it's treason against his country. And so I don't think there's any category or any legless tool in terms of moral uh, moral character that Donald Trump doesn't fail. Uh, he He's just a bad person, in my opinion. And it's just ama amazing to me that so many Americans in my party uh, love the guy and want to support him. I, I just don't get it. I don't understand. But so, it is what it is. I, I've been curious to get your thoughts about how many Republicans have been reacting you know, just to this most recent one, the special counsel team's indictment of Donald Trump. Uh, are you still in touch with folks uh, from your your uh, your party that are still on the Trump train? And, and if so, 
Um, what are, are, are they saying anything different behind closed doors or uh, is their, their public rhetoric uh, pretty indicative of how they really feel? I think it's a mix, uh, you know, depending on the individual, it's a mix. But to me, the sin is just the same, you know, supporting the guy, even though you don't believe in any of that, is just as bad politically as supporting him for, for who he is. It's almost worse. And then uh, that's a problem. You know, we uh, when you join a team uh, like the parties have been, uh, I don't blame some of the voters who are busy with their own personal lives saying, well, if so-and-so is my congressman or so-and-so is my senator, thinks it's okay, must be okay. They're a lot more into this than I am. And uh, my sense is that quite a few voters out there don't make up their minds based on everything that they read or see. They don't have time for that. But if they do believe in their member of Congress, they believe in their senator or the governor or whoever, and they tell them they're voting for Donald Trump or supporting him, uh, you know, if you're a person that's not that informed, you say, well, I'll go with that. And, uh, you know, social media, uh, which is a fairly new phenomenon, has uh, created a new sense of modesty of how much people really know what's going on. And, uh, and it is what it is. So I've got to ask you, what is uh, dinner like at the Cardenas Navarro household? Do you talk shop at dinner? Is there more agreement than disagreement? Or are there hearty debates around the, the dining room table? I would say at most 20% of our conversations political. You know, if she had an interesting guest uh, debut, she might tell me about that. Uh, whether it's a guest who wrote a book or an actor or politician. Uh, but I think most of what we talk about is our calendars. We're both out of town a lot. Uh, she's out of town three or four days a week. I travel most weeks. And so we talk mostly about, hey, what, when are, what's your travel look like? And what are you doing? What am I doing? Uh, we talk about where we're going to dinner or who we're going out with. But, and then, you know, probably 40% is about other people. You know, the kids, the uh, friends that we have, what people are doing. Uh, and so I would say it's a mix of, uh, of uh, seeing how other people are doing and catching up, talking about our calendar and how do we match it to see each other? Uh, what next fun thing can we do together in maybe 15, 20% political stuff? Oh, that's, that's refreshing. Uh, if I could be a fly on the wall, that, that must make for uh, fun, fun dinner conversations. So uh, last yeah. question and then one piece of business. This is more of the talk of politics and religion without killing each other. Strikes at the heart of your, our, our mission. What do you think each of us can do to be able to share space with or have better conversations with or even nurture relationships with people across our differences? So people who think differently than we do, have different beliefs than we do, get their news from different sources than we do. So how can we be better? Better at talking politics and religion without killing each other, is it even possible? Yeah, well, that's, uh, you know, part of this uh, cultural divide that we have uh, is the fact that uh, politicians have decided to personalize so much, which never happened before. We used to leave people alone when it came to personal stuff. Uh, we never mocked people. We never made fun of them. Uh, you know, we've lost a lot of respect for others. Uh, but, you know, I've always said that politics is a reflection of society. And before I criticize politicians a lot, 
look at our society in general. They're just reflective of it in so many ways. How we treat somebody in the grocery store, uh, how we treat somebody when we're waiting for a car, uh, how we treat people generally. Uh, so many people are now disrespectful, impatient, intolerant about just treating others. And so that's become a reflection in politics. It's not just fixing our politicians, it's fixing our society's code. I mean, we, we and you know, but uh, it's not, everything's not lost. Every day I see examples of good Samaritans, good people, people who want to dedicate their lives to helping others. So I'm, that may be a diminishing percentage of our population, but one that I hold on to as hopefully expanding in the future. What can we do? Yeah. Podcast you're doing, or I do, uh, appearing uh, in the media, trying to be a, uh, a congenial, responsible person. You know, our own personal conduct is probably the best thing we got going for us in trying to participate in this process of getting America to, to a place where we can be the best we can. That's a great word. That's a great exhortation and a great encouragement. One conversation at a time, one relationship at a time. Uh, you mentioned yep. podcasts. If uh, just to plant a seed, if you and Anna ever want to do a podcast together, I'm gonna. I, I want to raise my hand, apply for the job yeah. to produce that thing. I think a lot of folks would love to hear that. Last uh, little bit of business. How can folks follow you online? Keep abreast with all the great work you're doing. And well, I'm only I'm only on Twitter. Uh, I'm only on Twitter, and I stopped it for six months but i got back just because there's so much going on but i'm on twitter and the handle is al cardness and so terrific if you search if you search for me uh on twitter you'll find me terrific that's awesome uh okay. i really appreciate you coming on al it was great talking to you and getting to know you a little bit more personally and i hope it's not the last time we get to get to a visit with each other i agree thanks thanks for having me and thanks for you're being so prepared. My gosh, I'm humble. You thank you. You bet. You bet. And as always, if you dig what we're doing here, please hit that subscribe or follow button. And could you write a review for us? Give us 4.8 stars or five <laughs> or the maximum number of stars that you can give us. It really does help us get discovered so more people can join in the conversation. You can find us on all the app at all the uh, podcast apps. If you just type in talking politics uh, with an apostrophe instead of a g t-a-l-k-i-n apostrophe po politics and i am at Corey s nathan on all the social media platforms Corey s nathan c-o-r-e-y s is in sam nathan now go talk some politics and religion with gentleness and respect and have a great week mm -hmm.